This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, we finished up 1 Corinthians, uh, and that means we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, And this sermon series is going to be over the book of Micah. Now, uh, Micah is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, He's one of those little books that you're going to find somewhere near the middle of your Bible. If you like started with Matthew, actually, and kind of worked backwards, you'll probably get there faster. Uh, He follows Jonah, if you know Jonah and the big fish. Um, They're called minor prophets, uh, not because he's not important. Uh, He is quite important. It is still God's word, uh, just because it's shorter. Uh, So they're, you know, naming naming these sections of the Bible. They're pretty practical people. They're like, yeah, these ones are smaller. So we're going to call them the smaller prophets. Uh, So that's... Micah, as far as where it is in the Bible, as far as understanding Old Testament prophets, if you've ever read through the prophets, you might be thinking, oh boy, what are we in for? Uh, And today you're going to be in for a bunch of names uh, that I'm probably going to mispronounce. And you're going to be of of cities that I'm going to mispronounce, of the Old Testament cities. I don't know how to pronounce them. Um, And what we learn from the prophets is that there's a lot of history that Micah assumes that we know, that we don't know. And so we've got to do some work with history. Now I'm going to try to keep it as light as I can for those of you that hated history. Uh, but in order to understand Micah, you really are going to have to understand some Old Testament history. Or else he's just not going to make sense. The next thing to understand Micah, especially here in chapter 1, is going to be this idea of a covenant. And we've talked about it a little bit already today. Uh, covenants is, is a biblical word. It's used in the Old and New Testament. You can see God make a covenant with Noah, never to flood the whole earth again. There's a covenant with Abraham to bless him and make his name great. There's a covenant with Moses to set apart a whole people called Israel, a whole nation that were going to bring blessing to the world. There's a covenant with King David uh, that there would be an everlasting king to rule this nation. And there's a covenant that Jesus mentions a new covenant in his blood. Now, what's interesting about these covenants is that almost immediately after they're made, like you go in the passages where God's making these covenants, these kind of um, contractual agreements that are a little bit more personal, right? But they're, they're making this agreement, they're kind of signing on the dotted line, and immediately after, humanity breaks it. Now, of course, Jesus, Jesus doesn't, right? He's the exception. But the, um, everybody else breaks it. Abraham had a promise that he and Sarah were going to have a child in their old age, and instead he takes a younger wife to try to make it come about. He says, God's promises might be true, but I've got to find my own way to make it happen. Um, the, the covenant made with Moses, as God is making the covenant with Moses and writing on the tablets of stone, there's thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, and the people are down below making a golden calf to worship. It's like almost simultaneous. David, when the covenant is made with him, that there's going to be an everlasting king that's going to come from his line, that his line of kings will never end. Immediately takes another man's wife to be his own. Has the man murdered. Now, what's interesting is what the response is of these covenantal representatives Abraham, Moses, and David. Like, what do they do when they respond, uh, when they realize that the covenant is broken? And you would see that all of them respond with sorrow. A humble, broken, contrite heart. 
And they go back to God and they say, Lord, I have broken the covenant. I didn't have what it took. And so God relents from the disaster that he's promised upon them, and he continues his covenantal faithfulness nevertheless. That's what you see with all these guys. But this sorrow is not nevertheless quickly forgotten. Uh, the people quickly turn back to those things that broke the covenant in the first place. And Micah occupies an interesting space in the biblical story here because his job is to look at people who are actively breaking the covenant, the nation of Israel, and to say, you guys are doing a really bad thing. <laughs> and you guys have zero sorrow about it. No heartfelt repentance. Not concerned about it in the slightest. And God's judgment for this will be severe. Now, often again, we read the prophets and we hear their um, prophecies of judgment uh, and we, we kind of presume that their purpose was just to declare something that was going to happen. Um, and you kind of see something like this with Jonah. Um, the prophet's intentions were actually to get the people to repent, to turn back to covenantal faithfulness. They were actually declaring what was going to happen if they continued in their hard-heartedness. But their goal was actually repentance. And so Jonah, when he goes to the Ninevites, he's proclaiming this judgment that's going to happen, and the people turn in heartfelt sorrow. There's repentance, and God relents from the disaster. This is Micah's job. He's going to say some very severe things. And he's going to say, you need to have sorrow for your sin. And the way that Micah is going to address it in chapter 1 is going to say, you need to have sorrow for your high-handed brazen sin, and you need to have sorrow for your subtle syncretism. And we're going to look at both of those today. Those are going to be our two points about how God wants us to have godly sorrow for our brazen high-handed sin and also our subtle syncretism. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like water poured down from a steep place. All this is for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and, the, and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Laafra. Roll yourselves in the dust. 
Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethesel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The house of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marasha. The glory of the Lord shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So again, Micah's words sound pretty harsh. Um, even the bits that we don't understand are kind of like, okay, um, this does not sound good. Micah is there addressing his audiences, brazen, high-handed sin, and their subtle syncretism. And he said that both need repentance, sorrowful repentance. Now, I said our job today is to do a little bit of a history lesson. Micah is prophesying in the latter part of the 8th century B.C. This means that about 700 years before Jesus Christ is when Micah lived. So you could think of it, you know, as 700 years, but that's kind of hard for us to fathom. So think of like the whole lifetime of the United States and then like triple it. And you'd be pretty close. Okay, so imagine all of the uh, world politics that would change in triple that amount of time. One that Micah is going to oversee is this superpower of the Assyrians. See, he's speaking to Israel, right? Um, and there's this other nation that is absolutely conquering everything in its path, and that's Assyria. And what Micah sees is that Assyria is going to come in and it's going to take the northern kingdom away, the northern kingdom of Israel. So now we've got to talk about why there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Israel. And if you know your biblical history, maybe you know, but 200 years before Micah, David's grandson, Rehoboam, presided from Jerusalem in the southern kingdom over a civil war. And the northern kingdom seceded away. And when the northern kingdom did this, in order to consolidate their power away from the religious center that was in Jerusalem from worshiping the one true God, they created their own gods immediately. They said, we are separate. We want nothing to do with this. We're going to worship our own gods. The northern kingdom, in some sense, embodies this brazen, high-handed sin. So this is who Micah starts with. He is speaking to the southern kingdom peoples, but first he starts by describing these northern kingdom peoples in, in verse 5. He says, as for the transgressions of Jacob and as for Israel, which these are just names um, for, for the northern kingdom, other names. Um, he says, why is the anger of the Lord coming? Verse 7, because carved images shall be beaten to pieces. Idols the Lord will lay waste. Verse 7. You see, it seems that the northern kingdom was very aware that what they were doing was breaking their covenantal promises. 
They knew that what was absolutely wrong, worshiping other gods, was exactly what they did. They deliberately disobeyed. Now, I think we also deliberately disobey. Uh, I don't think many of us set up literal idols in our house, but I do think a lot of us have thoughts that cross our minds that say, you really shouldn't do this thing, and you do it anyway. Brazen, high-handed sin. You know that scene in Finding Nemo where he touches the butt? If you don't, uh, just imagine uh, any father looking at their child that says, do not do that thing. And the child looks them dead in the eye and does it. Now, some of us had unrighteously anger, angry fathers who would fly off the handle uh, for um, yeah, unrighteous reasons, you might say. But imagine the most righteous father and how he would handle that brazen display of high-handed disobedience. Because here's how Micah describes it. He says that when the father gets up, the mountains of the earth melt before him. His righteous anger burns so hot that the valleys crack open. You deliberately disobeyed me. Now, the focus of our sermon is about sorrow, but Micah intends in this moment for you to feel the fear of the Lord, the fear of his righteous anger in the face of deliberate disobedience. When you seek out and pursue drunkenness, though you know that the Bible says that it is a sin, the Lord's righteous anger burns. When you secretly wish the downfall of a competitor or enemy, even though you know that the Lord says, love your enemies, the Lord's anger burns. When you revisit that website, when you slander that person, when you excuse yourself from worship with God's people, you provoke the Lord to burning hot anger. It is brazen, high-handed, covenantal unfaithfulness. You're looking him dead in the eye, and you're saying, try me. Because when you declared yourself to be a part of this covenantal community, and when you said, Lord, I believe what you say is true, and I will live my life according to it, that sorrow that you initially felt at your sin has turned cold, and now you look at God as like a little bit impotent, when really the earth sees your actions and shudders. Not necessarily because of how heinous it is, although the Bible speaks that way too about our sin, um, but because you're looking him dead in the eye. And like any sibling who might be around might be like, uh-oh, that's bad. I'm going to go. The mountains and the valleys leave. Now God's response to this high-handed brazen sin of the northern kingdom is to hand it over to what it loves. This language of the prostitute in verse 7 is acknowledging a couple things. On, on the face of it, what display of covenantal unfaithfulness is more apt than soliciting a prostitute? Directly doing that which you vowed not to do. 
Now, the second part that God is doing there in verse 7, for from the free fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of the prostitute they shall return. He's basically saying, like, you wanted to be my people. You wanted to be a people marked by covenantal faithfulness to the one true Lord. But your actions say, your brazen, high-handed actions say that you actually want to be a people marked by that. So go for it. See what that is going to give you. Will it give you covenantal faithfulness? Will it give you forgiveness and everything that you're looking for? Will it give you that relationship that you so longingly want? God is saying that they sold themselves to the prostitute for what she could provide, that what this idol could provide, and that they will reap whatever that idol can provide. But we know throughout the rest of the prophets and Old Testaments that idols are made by human hands. They're not living, breathing things. They can give you nothing. In Micah's case, it was already known that the infidelity of the northern kingdom had already gone too far. Their wound was incurable in verse 9. And so during Micah's time, as he was prophesying, they would actually see Assyria come in and conquer Samaria, turn over all the stones of their fortified cities, push them over and lay bare the foundations. It was already happening. Her people would be dispersed, and they would never come to inherit the promises that were once for them, because there was no one left who in godly sorrow would repent and turn back to the Lord, not even one. I think we've all sinned in this way, this brazen, high-handed sin. And is there any solution? And like the... um, patriarchal uh, covenantal representatives that we saw in Abraham, Moses, and David, the response to this blatant high-handed sin that was very similar to theirs maybe is godly sorrow. And Micah shows us this in verses 8 and 9. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations and mourning. For those of us who have committed such sins, the question is do we repent in godly sorrow or do we reinforce the hardening of our own hearts by paying that fee to the prostitute time and time and time again? Now, this brazen high-handed sin was not exclusive to Samaria or the northern kingdom of Israel, but also reached the southern kingdom. Um, You can see this even uh, as early as verse 5. You start to see uh, Judah and Jerusalem mentioned, which are in the south part of Israel. Um, But really where it hits home uh, is later in verse 9, and here's why. What Micah is doing is trying to gain the trust of his audience. So he's, he's in some sense, a preacher, right, that's like standing in a room, and he's like, hey, guys, you you guys are all Southerners. You guys are great. Um, you You guys are doing awesome. Let me tell you about these northern people. They're really screwing it up. Isn't that right? And God's anger is going to burn hot against them. You can imagine the people are like, yeah, woo, get them, God. And in verse 9, her wound, Samaria's, the northern kingdoms, is incurable. And you imagine people cheering. And it has come to Judah. It has come to you. To the very gates of my people. To the gates of Jerusalem. 
the very same sins. When Micah makes clear in verse 9 is that he's going to transition now from talking about these people out there to talking about the people in here. Now, what happens in verse 10 and following, if you noticed, uh, is full of all of these cities that are somewhat difficult to pronounce. Um, And I got to say, although I did study biblical Hebrew, my ability to read it with the rhythm necessary to um, find what I'm about to tell you, I can't actually do. (laughs) And so I rely on other people to tell me that these words rhyme and sound the same. So what they're doing is they're going, what, what Micah is doing is he's naming all of these cities in the southern kingdom. And he's saying, all of you, and he's drawing on uh, their history, and he's drawing on words that rhyme, and he's drawing on uh, the opposite of what their city might mean. So like in verse 10, when it says Bethlehem, the word for roll is Afra. And so it's like Bethlehem, Afra. And so he's like, he's, he kind of got this rhythm to him as he's preaching. He's like, you guys are going to roll yourself in the dust and do something disgraceful. Verse 11, Safir means a beautiful city. And nakedness and shame is the opposite. But instead of working through each one of these examples, I'd like to just say this. The sin of the southern kingdom was really just the same as the northern kingdom, located in the same sort of area, maybe not as high-handed or brazen, but was done through what we might call subtle syncretism. Now, syncretism is a word that means merging different religious thoughts together. Uh, It's quite popular in our time, emerging different religions and will come at some form of truth. Um, For God's covenantal people, that is a big no-no. God has the truth. There's no merging it with something else. And the problem with the southern kingdom is that just like the northern kingdom, what they really wanted, what they really wanted was freedom. They wanted autonomy from Assyrian taxation. Because the reality is, is that Assyria had already conquered them, and they're like, yeah, you can keep your puppet king there or whatever you want as long as you pay us this fee, and we'll leave you alone. And they hated it. I mean, we all kind of hate taxes, right? But, like, they hated it, right? They're, they're a subjected people that are forced to be paying taxes, and they hated it. It was crippling their economy. They couldn't make it work, and Assyria knew it, but they're a vassal state, That was their duty. And so they would try to partner with different people. Um, The northern kingdom did the same thing. It didn't work out for them. They tried to partner with different people to fight against Assyria because maybe we can break free and establish our bit of independence, stick it to the man. And God was like, don't do that. The reason that you're conquered by Assyria is because you're not relating to me correctly. So the northern kingdom gets taken away. And now as he's turning, what Micah is saying to these people is like, you know, you want the same thing. You're just going about it in a slightly different way. You're going about it through this subtle syncretism. Because although the southern kingdom believed that they were better than the northern kingdom, because they didn't build idols right away, they continued their worship. They came to church. They sang the same songs. They held to the same doctrine. But what they did was they swapped it out as they started saying, God and They tried to bribe other countries for security, even though God told them not to. But they'd still come to church, and they'd still worship God, and they'd ask Him for security too. They believed that it was God and bribery. They tried to rely on their military might when God told them not to. In effect, worshiping their own military and God. 
But really, instead of just outright denying God like the northern kingdom did, they weakened him. They made him smaller. They said, you can't actually do this without our chariots. You can't actually do this without alliances. They believed themselves to be worshiping God, but really they were worshiping a religion of their own making. But God does not share power. Honestly, I believe that with Micah, we, we, we have a problem with our sinister, high-handed, brazen sin, but it's usually relatively easy to identify. What we have a much more serious problem with, just like the Israelites, is subtle syncretism. <clears throat> we believe that we are worshiping God and what He says when really we're worshiping our own views. For instance, does the Bible support your view of taxation? Does the Bible support your view on environmental policy? What about your view about the clothes you should or shouldn't wear and your view of modesty? What about the movies you watch? What about your view of your personal autonomy, castle doctrine to defend your property? Does the Bible support your view of love of neighbor? And I hope you see the problem with all of these. The Bible can never support your view. Never. You must support the Bibles. The thing about syncretism is that it's subtle. It seeps in. You go to the Bible and you're looking for an answer and then suddenly you just look for the Bible to justify an opinion that you already have. And if you're looking for it, you'll find it. It's a pretty big book. Syncretism is just a little bit here and a little bit there. And when we do this, we make God's word say something that it doesn't actually say by adding or subtracting our own opinion, by fudging the line between our beliefs and what God actually says. Now, here's what I think. I think that if you actually start studying God's word to find out what it says on its own terms, you would find many of your views supported. But I think that what you would also find is that it's much more complex than you originally thought. And what that does is that creates a healthy humility between your convictions and God's beliefs. And it's really good to keep those sorts of things separate. To be able to say, I might be wrong, and I might need God's word to challenge me. Because as we start doing this, it's really hard to see where God's word would challenge me anymore. God's word supports everything that I say. In response to syncretism, in whatever form it rears its head, Micah says that the appropriate response is sorrow too. But this one is a little bit more heartbreaking. Look with me at verse 16. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Micah's sorrow that the southern kingdom should have is ultimately based in the fact that the ultimate consequences will far, fall hardest, not on the immediate hearers, but on their children's children. You see, 
subtle syncretism pays dividends for generations because no one notices. Some 150 years after Micah is when the southern kingdom will finally fall. No one is alive when his prophecies actually come true that he was speaking to. It's their children's children, children. Weep for them because your subtle syncretism will deceive them. There is a sorrow that is right for us to have that for four generations from now, our children's children will still be rooting out the syncretism that we have brought in because our faith was less than it should have been, that there was a subtle covenant breaking, maybe not direct brazen disobedience, but nevertheless enough to obscure faithfulness away from Jesus to our own ideals. I'm assuming at this point we're feeling rightly unsettled. (laughs) I am a little bit, this is nervous laughter, that's how I handle that. I don't know if all of you guys do that too. That God would speak so harshly to his own people. That there would not only be relatively immediate consequences for the northern kingdom, but that there would be generational consequences for the southern kingdom. But I hope you understand what Micah's trying to do. He's trying to heighten the importance of breaking that covenantal relationship. That no matter whether you do it by, like Nemo, touching the butt, looking direct in the eye and saying, I can do whatever I want, or whether you just slowly start swapping things out. Being like, yeah, the Bible supports everything that I believe. There is actual covenantal infidelity. And the question resounds for Micah and for us. Will this people be who they were supposed to be? Will they be a people with humble and contrite hearts, with sorrow over their sin? Or are they going to be a people who are brazenly hard-hearted, a people who are slothfully syncretistic, Throughout the Old Testament, God not only requires obedience to his commands as part of the covenant, but in many places, just like with uh, Abraham, Moses, and David, when these commands are broken, there is recourse to restore the covenantal relationship, and that recourse involves a healthy amount of sorrow and sometimes sacrifices, but there's, there's things in place for how these people are made right. But there's a problem clearly in Micah's day. And there's a problem clearly in our own. We don't feel the sorrow that we should. We don't feel the weight of our high-handed brazen sin or our subtle syncretisms. The story of Jesus, when he comes to make a new covenant is not only that he lived a perfect life and died for our sins, which is, of course, true. But Isaiah, Micah's contemporary, they they prophesied at the same time, would say this about Jesus, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You see, here's the deal about Jesus in Luke 19 when he's walking into Jerusalem, the very city that Micah's prophesying against, and he sees it from a distance. He starts weeping. 
He feels the sorrow. He's committed no sin. He feels the sorrow for them, covenantally faithful for them. And he even says in that moment in Luke 19, as he's weeping, that indeed Micah's prophecies will come true yet again. And someone else is going to come in and tear down that city block by block and uncover the foundations again. And Jesus feels the sorrow. A chapter before that in Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And the rich young ruler goes away uh, because he couldn't accept what Jesus had to say because he was too rich. He didn't want to sell everything that he had. And it says that Jesus looked at him in love. Jesus felt the sorrow for him. He did not just have sorrow. He took it upon himself to do those things that we should have done. To restore us again to covenantal faithfulness. Of course he had to wipe out our sins. Of course he had to make us right. But he also lived the life we never could have, even though he himself made no sins. We're the ones that are supposed to be sorrowful, and we can't do it. Our hearts are too hard. We're too blind. And he would give us a covenantal relationship that he had earned, and he would become a man of sorrows, despised and rejected. And because of this act, even our hard hearts could now be turned into hearts that could feel again, that could have sorrow at our sin. Sorrow that leads to true repentance, not worldly sorrow like 2 Corinthians says. In Christ, we can now fight against our high-handed, brazen sins and our subtle syncretisms. And in Christ and in the new covenant in his blood, we can again have a covenantal relationship with God that isn't based on our ability to feel sorrow for our sins, but on his ability to feel the sorrow and pay for them. We are reminded of this story, not only by Micah in God's word today, but we're also invited by Jesus to a table to taste and see that it is true. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, betrayed by his closest friends, abandoned, left alone, man of sorrows, on that night, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, now give it to you. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant. Poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Brothers and sisters, this is a tangible sign of God's covenantal love for you. For those who identify with these covenantal promises, who understand uh, what Jesus had to go through just so that they could feel sorrow at their own sins and have committed their lives to him in baptism, this table is for you. If you're unsure where you stand in relation to God's covenantal promises, unsure of who Jesus is, then I would ask that you would refrain from this table.
evaluate where you stand, and then come to participate in this covenant again. Now, as we come up, um, we're going to come up through the center aisle, which is a little bit of a change. So is everybody hearing me? I know I'm changing, I'm changing the order. Uh-oh. We're going to come up through the center aisle in two lines and then, and then set, spread out that way so we can go around um, kind of the outside. There are gluten-free options uh, at both of these tables. Uh, please just notify your server if you need that. Uh, and then there is wine and grape juice uh, to partake. The grape juice is uh, clear and the wine is red. If you would, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you fulfilled all the covenantal requirements on our behalf. Your sorrow for our sin is what it should have been from us. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, we might feel the immense weight of what it is to participate in this covenant renewal here. The immense weight of Jesus Christ himself who says, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. Jesus, let us partake of your very body that suffered for us that resurrects us, and that nourishes us even now. And we ask you for this, Lord. Amen.